All right, welcome back everybody to Couch to Couch, Making Therapy Make Sense with Chuck LeBlanc. Today we have Courtney Vizina with us. I'm going to introduce her just in a moment, but I wanted to welcome you back. And if, as I mentioned earlier, make sure to like, share, subscribe, do all the things you want to do and send this podcast to people you think that it'll make a difference for. All right, so Courtney Vizina is the owner and director of Courtney James Counseling and Psychotherapy. She is a registered psychotherapist qualifying and has obtained her master's uh, of counseling psychology from Yorkville University, just like I have. We have a lot of us running around. <laughs> she has trained in emotion-focused therapy, Gottman Method Couples Therapy, level one, and foster parent trained with focus on trauma and attachment. Courtney has clinical experience with a range of clients, including those suffering from anxiety, depression, sexual and emotional trauma, infertility issues, and physical ailments. And also you do quite a bit of work with foster both parents and adoption as well. So I'm going to get you to introduce that. So I'm, I must have missed something in this bio. So I'll get you to introduce yourself to listeners and we'll take it from there. Sure. So like you mentioned, I'm Courtney and Courtney James Counseling and Psychotherapy kind of entered the Kempville community last summer of 2020, and it's been a really exciting ride ever since, to be honest. Um, it's been amazing. I've been able to watch my my team grow, but more than that, to expand our services to be able to meet the needs of our community, which I think is really exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to come at this with a very community oriented approach. And, and that being said, that's why I love collaborating with you, Chuck, and just kind of around the town. And I feel like COVID has kind of put a damper on a lot of the possibilities for community Mm -hmm. outreach and, you know, meetings and groups and all of these things that, that I have the desire to pursue. So hopefully we'll be able to, I don't know, kind of formulate some more outreach opportunities that, Mm -hmm people can attend physically, which would be nice. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. The world will open up as it does. Yeah. And then I guess as far as just um, clinically speaking, uh, I do work with children and young adults and adults as well as um, couples. And I have found the work with children to be very exciting. And it wasn't something that I anticipated going into, to be honest, into this. Um, Mm -hmm. I do have young children of my own. So I was like, Oh, we'll just, you know, keep those things separate. I'll do kids stuff at home and uh, clinically just, you know, stick with adults, but it hasn't really gone that way. And, you know, getting, getting more training and working with children and having the supervision that goes along with it has really been encouraging, but also just literally being in that room with those kids has been super cool. And like you mentioned, um, you know, working in the foster care and adoptive community, that's, that is really where, I guess you could say like where my heart goes out to and Mm -hmm. where I want to pursue doing more and more work because I find a lot of caregivers in that community, a lot of children and youth who are a part of the system or have been a part of the system, you know, there's this almost like a lack of awareness that Mm -hmm. you can have therapeutic support for the roles that either they have taken on by choice or they've been given. And Mm -hmm. I think it's beneficial to know and spread awareness that, hey, this is a really traumatic thing. This is a really like there's you know, secondary trauma that caregivers can. <laughs> okay, so you're you're mentioning uh, working through well, working in a very special niche with foster and adoption mm-hmm. for the full range of that gambit. So the adults, the foster parents, the children, and everybody in between. Yeah. Uh, and it sounds like you hit a niche with that because I haven't actually heard of therapy directed towards that. Although that would be very needed. Um, I mean, similar to when I entered Kempville with the men's mental health, there was few, if not none of it Yeah. by the time I got there. And then when I got there, I created a niche that's now popping up everywhere, which is pretty cool. So yeah, I imagine you're doing the same. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, uh, it's been helpful as well. Um, another member of my team at the practice, you know, has experience in child and family protective services. And um, so just knowing that, we can 
kind of approach things in a similar sense, obviously with our own, our own personal touches. But, um, I do, I do like that having that background of knowledge and information I find can be really helpful. Mm -hmm. So when dealing with, cause I know we were talking a bit of, uh, attachment styles before we start press record, which is always mm -hmm. a funny thing. You should press record right away, but here we are. <laughs> Um, so we're dealing with uh, attachment styles, which is, you know, for the listeners at home, that's another modality or, or lens to look at when talking to someone. Mm -hmm. um, and we all, we all know that every client is different. So generally we don't stick to one. It's more of like a toolbox you're bringing in, but attachment styles is something that I value highly when talking to people, because you can see it from a mile away, the different behaviors and styles that people choose to use or habitually use when bonding and creating connections. So can you tell me more about your thoughts on attachment style? Sure. So attachment style in general, yes, I find that I apply that knowledge and information to every client that walks through my doors, but especially when speaking from an adoption lens or a foster care lens, um, attachment goes right down to child caregiver interactions right from the get-go. And if, mm -hmm. as you can imagine, if, you know, you're sent into the foster care system or being adopted immediately from birth and yes, potentially into a beautiful, loving family. But the fact of the matter is there has been an attachment rupture immediately. Mm -hmm. And that is significant. And I think it can be difficult for a lot of us to kind of wrap our heads around because we view foster care and adoption as a really beautiful thing. And it is a beautiful thing. And the care that, you know, those caregivers are offering to these children. But at the same time, I think it's incredibly important to identify and validate the trauma and the attachment mm -hmm. relational trauma that has happened immediately. Um, so that being said, you know, I look at these children or youth or even adults now who have come through the system and there can be relational issues that mm -hmm. maybe haven't been tended to, but even more than that, haven't been recognized. And so going through life with, with attachment difficulties is significant and it can, mm -hmm. it can impact daily functioning. It can impact behaviorals. Like if we think about a child in school, mm -hmm. um, let's say they, have had relational trauma, maybe they're not even in foster care, but attachment trauma in general, you know, ruptures in that caregiver relationship. If we picture a child who we, you know, we tend to look at children and say, oh, developmentally, they should be able to accomplish this, this reading mm -hmm. task, this writing task, you know, behaving this way in a situation. But if this child has to use all or most of their energy you know, scanning for danger, wondering mm -hmm. how they're going to be cared for or loved, or that may not even be a question. They may not even be aware that loving kindness is something they should be receiving. Mm -hmm. If they're constantly scanning around them, then developmentally, they're not going to be meeting those milestones because all of their energy is going towards safety, finding safety, longing mm -hmm. for safety. Nothing's left over for, oh, this reading task they're learning in grade one. That's not, mm -hmm. that's not practical to look at. So I think that awareness and that perspective that we can gain is extremely significant to, to have an understanding of what these, these, or honestly, so many other children, I'm speaking kind of from the foster care perspective, but many children who are still in their biological homes are still experiencing, you know, adverse childhood experiences that influence all of these mm -hmm. things. Yeah. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, the one of the things that grabbed me with attachment was that, you know, children, they're going to learn. I always simplify it this way. So you work with kids. Correct me on this as we go. <laughs> but, you know, the, when, I, when a child enters the world, they're new. They've never been here before. So they rely on their parents to understand how it works. And there's three categories that I always talk about that they're understanding. And it's bonding, play, and safety. And each category has their different pieces, but I always boil it down to those three. And they're looking at their parents to learn how to do that. So depending on how the parents teach them how to bond, so how they're treated, mm -hmm. will depend on how they treat other people and see relationships going forward. So it has that ripple effect. Yeah. 
-hmm. And the same with play. Play is all about adventure and exploration. It's like little scientists, right? This is why kids put sand in their mouth, right? They're not nuts. They want to, they've never been here before. They don't know what it tastes like or what it's going to do. And depending on how that's handled will depend on how they explore and play with the world as an adult, teenager and adult. And then the same with safety. You learn all of your safety adaptations right from that moment on. And so it's curious with attachment style. And this is a question for you. So based on that framework, A, have I missed anything? And then how do you understand attachment like from the get-go? From the get-go of infants or from the get-go of meeting a client? Oh, that's a tough question. (laughs) Uh, Well, let me take that back just a little bit because I'm getting excited now, so I'm throwing a lot at you. (laughs) Uh, Let's say for our listeners, so when they hear the word attachment and then attachment rupture, Mm -hmm. we might not know what any of that means. Right. So let's start there and then we'll work our way. Okay, so yeah, let's go kind of back to the basics with attachment style. So if we are looking at, you know, a healthy child caregiver relationship, we can go back to actually, I really love the, um, the strange situation. Mm. Um, I don't know what you would, it's not, I wouldn't use the word experiment, um, strange, strange situation study. Okay. Where back in the day, based on John Bowlby's, uh, knowledge, you know, this, this experiment was created where a child is playing in a room with their caregiver, a child, under age two, so young, young, um, is playing in a room with their caregiver. The caregiver is asked to leave and they see how that separation happens. And then after, after time, caregiver comes back and we see what, how the reunification looks like. Mm-hmm. So this can go many different ways. A secure, a secure attachment, which is honestly, most of the population is, does have a secure attachment. So if we look securely, they the child will notice mom leaves maybe slightly distressed but go on playing and understand that they still feel a sense of safety Mm -hmm. and that's what it comes down to that felt safety mom enters the room again they may acknowledge mom be happy to see mom and then continue playing Mm -hmm. and there's that there's that safe base that is that is evident and then there's different effects that that can occur the child Mm -hmm. can be completely dismissive and, you know, recognize that mom is gone, not pay attention. But the interesting part with that is when the child, when the parent comes back into the room, they, there is some where the child will ignore mom mm-hmm. and act as if, and from our perspective, we're thinking like, oh, they could be a little, you know, a little pissed off here, but in their mm-hmm. own child language. And that is, is, an example of dismissive avoidant attachment in a really young person, but we can talk about how that changes over time Mm -hmm. and how that can come out in adult behaviors. And then lastly, you know, an anxious attachment would be mom goes to leave child grabs onto mom's leg and you hear about, you know, separation anxiety and that's Mm -hmm. sort of that behavior that comes out with that. And they're just longing there's, and you can see it in the child's face. There's a fear there. They're, Mm -hmm. they are not, secure enough in that relationship to know that mom's going to come back. So there's Mm -hmm. fear like you're leaving, you may never return to me. And this is life or death, basically. Mm -hmm. So from a really infant perspective, those are the three main attachment styles and how they how they grow and develop over time is interesting as well. And yet a lot of the same behavior, Mm -hmm. but in an adult form. And I like to use this information in relationship work, Mm -hmm. you know, recognizing what roles do we play and how do we, how do we yearn for that attention or that security from our partners? But it often comes from this really, this really natural, innate biological urge in us and I don't Mm. I don't think many of us really kind of go there in our minds when we think like oh why am I behaving this way Mm. what is it that I need from my partner and as an aside the caregiver role that becomes it's not always just a caregiver sorry I'm like backtracking here but I'm thinking I'm thinking of how child caregiver roles this just means the caregiver is the most significant person in that child's life. So as Mm -hmm. we grow and mature, our parents are not always that most significant person. Our partner often becomes Mm -hmm. that attachment figure. So that's kind of how that shift can occur. Yeah, it's amazing because that's the bonding structure that we develop, right? The toolbox to learn, oh, this is how we bond. Yeah. 
We have the anxious attachment, the dismissed, anxious avoidant. Like there's a few of them. Mm-hmm. What I find amazing about it, and in sessions, this is tends to be similar to my anxiety talks, which I've talked so much about on this podcast that I won't go into it again uh, <laughs> today, but is that it's a continuum. So everyone can dabble with different tools from each, but you'd mm-hmm. lean more one way or the other, depending on how you were raised. Right. And the goal like uh, through therapy is to reach a more secured attachment phase while recognizing that the avoidant attachment, so let's talk about avoidant, anxious avoidant for a minute, is a survival tactic, not mm-hmm. something broken. It's how you learn to survive in a bonding mm-hmm. situation, which can come up in a rupture. Because in a rupture, you know, there's a few things you can do with that. Kick, scream, freak out, which is an attempt to get the person to come back because you can't live without them. Mm-hmm. Or ignore them entirely and then let them know that they're not, they do nothing for you. Right. Like the little piece of the guilt thing. Mm-hmm. Sure, if you're going to go away, you'll be gone. Fine. And that's all part of that survival instinct. Yeah, and if you think of that as well, coming from from that developmental or biological view, you know, often with dismissive attachment styles, those people have had to depend on themselves Mm -hmm. for survival, right? So that idea of leaning on another person is terrifying because you can't depend on other people. Mm -hmm. So, and that could happen any number of ways as you grow up and um, yeah, maybe your, maybe your basic needs were not being met, you know, physically through food, or it could be just your emotional needs were not being met and you have been dismissed mm-hmm. and your emotions, your feelings have been dismissed over time. And this is how you've learned to take care of yourself. Mm-hmm. To internalize those emotions and basically have them in a vacuum. Yeah. And I think that's a beautiful thing that can happen in therapy. So from an avoidant perspective, a lot of those things are shoved down, right? And, and not brought out because they have been minimized over time and you've just kind of learned that's what it has to be. But on the flip side as well, from an anxious perspective, all of these emotions are tumbling out Mm -hmm. of you often. Right. So I think in therapy, and like you mentioned, coming to that more secure base, we want to reach, you know, a feeling, a a moment of stabilization. And Mm -hmm. if we are able to work our way and find that in a therapeutic setting, we can model that with our clients. And that Mm. is such a beautiful thing. And being Mm. able to, to experience that, to kind of play with it in a safe space within therapy. And to, like I said, to model that is, I believe that first step before being able to take that knowledge, to take a step in a different direction outside of that therapeutic space. Mm -hmm. That's one of my favorite parts of therapy I would say the most Mm -hmm. fulfilling because the therapist's job is to be like a model caretaker in a way yeah like this space is yours it's for you Mm -hmm. no judgment full empathy and we're gonna do this together yeah it's not one above another we're gonna figure it out you know Mm -hmm. my practice is full males and I deal with vulnerability and a lot of vulnerability issues stem from shame which I'll get to in a minute but are displayed through avoidant attachment with men because we're oh, socialized yeah. not to connect emotionally. We mm-hmm. were supposed to socialize to keep it in and do it ourselves because it's embarrassing and we're full of shame. And so in the therapeutic room, the whole point is for me to be open and vulnerable mm-hmm. so that they can see if that's something they're okay with Yeah, and they get to play with it on their own terms, open up more and more or less and less depending on how it goes. Mm-hmm. But you're playing with those tools together and modeling them and then you can take them outside of the room once you're ready and comfortable. It's a very slow, methodical process and very intense when you're coming from an avoidant perspective. Definitely. And if you think about being able to model that, let's back up to, you know, those individuals who have been provided with a secure base over Mm -hmm. time. They have had the pleasure, I guess you could say, of being offered this safe space throughout their lives, throughout their developmental stages. So Mm -hmm. they've been able to play with these emotions to express themselves to their caregivers, to receive positive feedback, to create adaptive coping strategies for when they are feeling this way. So that is a really... I mean, we can, we value that immensely in when people are being offered that over time. And it's just... 
there are so many of us who have not been provided that space. So that's when therapy can come in. And not to say that everyone with a secure attachment doesn't need therapy. That is not what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. But I'm saying that, you know, it's, it's interesting to consider that there are some people who have been provided this secure base where they can play around mm -hmm. with this and others are walking in and this is into therapy and this is the first safe space they have felt in a long time. And mm -hmm. I think it's a real pleasure to be able to do the work that we do. And it's not, it's not always easy or comfortable even from our end, but mm -hmm. it's, it's powerful. Yeah, I always joke with many of my clients how I, I came into this as a vulnerable male. I'm like, I'm going to model vulnerability, but I had no idea what I was getting into, apparently. The levels yeah. of vulnerability I had to go. You know, I remember after the first month of being a practitioner, I went, well, shit, I thought I was pretty open and vulnerable. <laughs> I've got a lot of work to do. Yeah. <laughs> Which is great. Well, and even on a, you know, on a, uh, on a personal note as well, you know, the idea of learning about attachment like feel I feel like I'm learning more about attachment constantly mm -hmm. and then having my own children at home as well is a very interesting dynamic because you mm -hmm. learn all this knowledge and all these things you know and how but then putting you know those practical elements to work in your in your actual life is a whole different story so mm -hmm. it's really it's yeah it's interesting it's a everything's a learning curve for sure that's right yeah I think it was Carl Rogers who said you know, to do therapy right is to recognize that when you meet someone new, you know, the client doesn't come into the room, their whole world comes in. Mm. And so to think as a therapist that you won't be changed in the process of therapy yeah. is to be ignorant and, <clears throat> and to be doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. Basically, you have to be open to be changed as long as well as the client because it's collaboration, Definitely. which is amazing. But anyway, tangent. So let's go back to the attachment. So Okay. I'm curious about a couple of things. So how do you see it from the foster and the adoption place? You're mm -hmm. dealing with kids. So uh, like in the heat of learning all of these adaptations, mm -hmm. how do you see that play out and how are you able to, what are some things you're able to do with them to help make that attachment more secure? Yeah. Well, to, to come back to the safety piece, uh, I think is extremely significant. One, to to recognize the trauma that has happened and not necessarily to come into a session with a child and talk only about this trauma and these relational, mm -hmm. you know, ruptures. That's but instead to recognize that and to know that on my end and to to understand from a place of of caring and consideration that, you know, there's a lot going on inside these little minds mm. and to be able to offer safety in those moments to be a positive example. And like we've mentioned, you know, that modeling piece that comes into therapy is huge, but also to, I, it's the recognition piece for me that, that stands out. And I have found over time too, thinking from a strictly foster care and adoptive lens, it's these, these pieces of information just expand more into every person I come in contact with. Mm -hmm. And it's that idea that, you know, behind the curtain, there's so much going on and being able to, to just, validate these people and let's say it's a child let's say there are behaviors that come out you know to recognize that we have the opportunity to offer you know psychoeducation at an age-appropriate level but that can offer connections for these kids mm -hmm. you're not just potentially behaving differently or feeling differently for no reason there mm -hmm. are there are connections to be made here the things you have lived through are valuable and impactful and talking, talking through that, but also feeling through that. And mm -hmm. I think that there, you mentioned shame earlier and, you know, there's, there's this, there's a book called the seven core issues in foster care and adoption and shame slash guilt is its own little, its mm -hmm. own little section in that. And 
And I think with children in care, there is this innate shame that can come with them. And Mm -hmm. oftentimes that feeling of not being wanted, not Mm -hmm. being cared for. And that is very internalized in, in a lot of ways and can Mm -hmm. be. And I'm sure I'm, you know, given that you have this, a lot of knowledge from a shame perspective, you know, that, that idea that shame is, it's generally maladaptive. So it's generally Mm -hmm. internal. It relates to ourself and our being and who we are and feeling less than others. Mm -hmm. Whereas guilt on the other side of that is generally an adaptive response. You're, you can, it can motivate you to search for forgiveness and -hmm. it relates more to others. So this shame, this self-focused shame and being less than is something that that is very prevalent in mm-hmm. the foster care and adoption community. Because if you think of those those early connections, you know, that should be building you up, they're usually not there. Yeah, and I, I have like an interesting relationship with shame and guilt. So I, I find shame, I'm running on a hypothesis now that shame is the heart of most uh, mental health problems. And I think a lot of it has to do with shame being weaponized. So we have, we know from an emotional perspective that uh, guilt and shame, if we think of it like a radar, like we have a built-in radar that tries to keep us within our community. So if we screw something up, we're going to feel guilty, not so that we like go home and lock ourselves, right? And, And think we're shitty people. But it's to give us a minute and go, oh, I think I just had like a relational repair or relational rupture issue. And yeah. if I don't fix this, then I'm in trouble. So then they go to do a reconciliation. And the shame is the same. is more like, oh, I, if I feel like I'm a bad person because of what I just did, does that mean I won't be accepted? Mm-hmm. But I think one of the big problems is that shame gets weaponized in our culture. And guilt to a certain extent, but it gets weaponized as in we're told not to do something. Yeah. And we're told to stop that. We're told to be different people. We're told that pieces of our identity uh, don't fit. Mm-hmm. We're never given an explanation. It's just like told, do this or else, you know. Uh, so what ends up happening is we build an internal compass. And so the shame, just like you said, gets internalized. And then yeah. no one around us needs to tell us we're a bad person. We'll do that ourselves. Mm-hmm. But now it's in a vacuum and it's for no purpose other than maybe we're feeling a little bit you know, better that day. Oh, I'm really proud of this thing. I can't be proud. I'm an idiot. I need mm-hmm. to stay there. Otherwise, I'll get kicked out. And that's how it gets weaponized. And I think in attachment, I mean, it's life or death uh, in an attachment situation, especially for a kid. Mm-hmm. If the mother ignores us, that's the organism's going to think, oh, no, we're going to be exposed and killed. Yeah, that's very biological. And so I do feel that within the attachment world and rupture, shame is a huge piece of it. So how do you deal with that with kids? How do you deal with Mm -hmm. shame with kids? Well, I like the idea of bringing these things out into the open so Mm. like you said that that vacuum picture or image that that is scary and that Mm. can can intensify everything so let's say speaking of any emotion you know when we when we hold it inside it can fester and build and grow and same with shame I believe that in the act of calling these things out, you know, bringing these things into the open can be a game changer, can be, mm-hmm. can offer moments of clarity and moments of connection where you're thinking, okay, yeah, I've been feeling this way. This person is reflecting this to me because I think there's value in that having someone that you trust and that, and that is built up over time as well the whole therapeutic alliance and needing to build Mm -hmm, that, mm -hmm. you know, that sense of security in the relationship, but coming to this point where you're able to talk about shame Mm -hmm. and how for each, for that individual that's sitting in front of you, 
allowing them a moment to talk about what what this vacuum is to them what in their words because each child as well each human mm-hmm. you have your own your own verbiage that you use you have your own you know analogies or images that come to mind and i think being able to offer them the space to express mm-hmm. those images to express those words whatever even if they're made up words what is it that you can label this as let's talk about it let's bring it out into the Mm -hmm. open so it doesn't have to stay in this vacuum and pick up speed and gain gain weight over time and become this seemingly unmanageable thing because Mm -hmm. we can we can manage it we can talk about it i find that amazing because it's uh, shame is it has a life of its own Right. Mm-hmm. So uh, one technique that I use a lot and just because it's how I see it is externalizing. Mm-hmm. You, you are not your shame. Yeah. Right. Shame is a label that we call the effects of a lot of external forces. Mm-hmm. It's just how you're managing those external forces. And especially with avoidant attachment, it is so much easier to say, like, I suck than to have to confront the people who suck, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> to put it another way. Because it's so much easier to just say it's my problem than go out there and set boundaries and demand better from people. Right. And with the, with the shame, I, it's amazing hearing you say this about kids because shame dies in the light. And so it does not want to be brought out. Mm-hmm. So the closer to the surface you bring it and the more closer to the light you bring it, the more it's going to fight like a rabid animal mm-hmm. uh, to avoid it. So it's going to make you want to internalize, want to dissociate want to run away from the conversation, want to <laughs> blank out, yeah. cry, freak out, all of these emotions, get angry, uh, all of it, because it doesn't want to be seen. Because mm-hmm. once it's seen, there's nothing to it. Yeah. It's kind of like the, the bully with no muscles mm-hmm. once it's out there. It's like you take the mask off. Yeah. That's right. That's right, because, I mean, shame thrives when you're kicked out of a community. And so when you're brought into one and it's like, actually, you are welcome here, mm-hmm. then shame has no place. And it's amazing that you can do that with kids, mm-hmm. kids specifically. Um, so as we bring this more closer to the adult stage, because I want to talk about your experience with adults and then talk about your experience with this uh, as it plays out in the couples. Mm-hmm. Because you and I are trained similarly with Gottman. But I've never done couples work. It's something I've been interested in, but I just, there's something about it that seems so intense for me that I'm like, ah, I'll get there eventually. Go for it. (laughs) Um, So how does this shame and attachment play out with your one-on-one clients? As adults. As adults. Oh my goodness. Consistently is how Mm -hmm. it plays out. (laughs) (laughs) Yep. Um, So if we even take this, this idea of, you know, work with children, those tools that that we're giving children to call these things out to put labels to their emotions to be able to express these things in a safe environment they the intention is that they will take that knowledge and bring it with them as they grow Mm. so that i think is a beautiful thing now if we go right to the you know the adults who have never never been offered this opportunity like Mm -hmm. most of us haven't really to be honest like this Mm -hmm. is being able to speak openly about emotions to be validated to be like this is all of these words are very they're kind of like buzzwords these days Mm -hmm. right Mm -hmm. where all of a sudden people are like oh I'm allowed to feel these things I'm allowed to talk about these things and this Mm -hmm. is such a strange situation super new in our society yeah yes and I think as we meet other people who so let's say in a therapeutic setting, you meeting a person who is offering you this space to literally lay it all on the floor, that is very likely the first time this person has had that opportunity. So mm-hmm. I think as they come into it, you know, is there shame and guilt present? Yes. Is it talked about right away? No. And I think that's okay. Because mm-hmm. like I said, there's that relational aspect in therapy where you need that you mm-hmm. need that base to go off of. You need to come in and reach reach a sense of stabilization before you can go into these areas that might seem deep, deeper and darker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, a level of comfort you need to understand. Because for, for a lot of clients that I work with specifically, they're not even used to that environment. So mm-hmm. they don't know what that environment looks like. Yeah. So a month or two in therapy is about 
having that environment be present consistently mm-hmm. that they can warm themselves up to it. Definitely. And at, at the same time as teaching them how to set those boundaries and how to feel comfortable and what that means. And, you know, after the shame piece and the attachment piece is dealt with, the vulnerability in my case, it's then about, okay, well, how do you do that? And how do you create that safe space outside? Right, exactly. Not everybody is safe. There are yeah. some people you interact with that you don't want to be vulnerable with, and that's fantastic. <laughs> don't yeah. be vulnerable with those people. <laughs> but it's being able to see the difference. That's a whole other piece. Definitely. And I think, you know, even maybe even a step before that, bringing that out of the therapeutic space to your relationships with other people, I think that relationship with self is huge. Mm. And knowing that you have within you a space that you can create safety and vulnerability Mm. in where you are accepting who you are Mm -hmm. and being able to recognize that I am able to accept myself and walk into a space Maybe the space doesn't feel completely comfortable, but I know that at my core, I'm okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. How does, I'm going to ask you a pretty big question. <laughs> how do you do that? As a th- what are some steps that you take or that you talk through with your clients? That is a good question. Cause it's so, honestly, it's so different with everybody. So I, let me try mm-hmm. and. <sighs> Maybe go okay, to your favorite. So... Sure. So I like to come, you mentioned Carl Rogers earlier, you know, along with attachment, I love to come from a Carl Rogers perspective. That's very client centered. And I'm Mm -hmm. in that moment with that person and, and watching somebody from an attachment perspective as well is very interesting because you can kind of notice when certain walls will go up, whether Mm -hmm. that's, you know, from, from an anxious or dismissive or however, whatever label you kind of want to put on it. The fact of the matter is that when you're, when you're interacting with somebody and maybe you touch on a certain spot and there's a, like there'll be a wall sometimes and you'll just Mm -hmm. kind of run into that a little bit. And then over time, as you become more comfortable, you can kind of move past that wall a little bit, or maybe take it down step by step. And, and I think because shame and guilt is so prevalent in our society that idea that we are able to accept ourselves seems so foreign. Mm-hmm. And so I, I believe that one of the first ways to approach that, and it's very similar to what I said before, but is to talk about it, to bring mm-hmm. things, you know, out into the open where you're saying, let's say there's, you know, somebody who is consistently using um, negative self-talk in session, mm-hmm. because that will come out and someone who, you know, is putting themselves down and, and taking a second and literally just stopping in session and, and asking them, did, did you hear what you just said about yourself? Mm-hmm. And they, they may, honestly, they may not have even noticed because mm-hmm. this sort of self-talk is so consistent, but I taking a moment and stopping and pausing in that moment and saying, what did you, do you hear what you just said? Mm-hmm. Let's, let's bring that out. Let's talk about that. What is that? What's in that? Mm-hmm. that sits so deeply and and calling out these things and it could be line by line of their negative mm-hmm. self-talk mm-hmm. it could be allowing us to go deeper into there but I think it's very client specific and yeah I I'm smiling because I'm just thinking of how differently it can come up in each situation mm-hmm. and I and I love those moments when you it's not necessarily a aha moment, but it's, mm. it's, it's that moment when they realize, oh, someone noticed, someone noticed the way I'm speaking to myself. Mm. We don't, we don't like speaking to ourselves that way. Nobody likes hearing mm. ourselves say those things, but it's become so culturally acceptable that people do it all the time and it's never, no one ever mentions anything. So let's, mm. you're in this moment all of a sudden when a person sitting across from you, another real human is staring at you and saying, is that true? Do you, mm-hmm. did you hear what you said about yourself? I don't, I don't see that in you or I don't. And just exploring that mm-hmm. and being seen. Yeah. It's being seen. Yeah. That's a yeah. big piece. Just being seen in the light. And it's amazing when, yeah, that's the piece that gets me every time is that, it's amazing that these situations are all defenses. Mm-hmm. You know, if I call myself an idiot when I'm nervous about something like, oh, they're not going to want to hear me talk. I don't know what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. 
Well, that's a defense trying to protect me from feeling more shame, from that core wound, from the embarrassment. Mm -hmm. At the end of the day, all of these tactics we're using, using are actually in our best interest. They're just tools that no longer serve us. Yeah. So that's the big compassion piece for me is just, oh, okay, well, I'm not trying to self-sabotage because you can't. Everything you're doing is to help in some way. But yeah. when it gets annoying or when there's long-term consequences that are less than ideal, it's simply a tool that's no longer effective for who you are now. Right. And if I can kind of piggyback on that for a second, the idea that, you know, some of these seemingly maladaptive coping mechanisms are are harmful and they can be, but going back to that, you know, early, early childhood trauma or adverse mm -hmm. childhood experiences, whether we apply it to foster care adoption or not, the idea that often these children and teens coming up have very obvious behaviors that you can see. And instead of viewing them as potential trauma survivors, mm. we we view them as, you know, troubled kids or mm. all these other labels that get thrown out, where in reality, their coping mechanisms, strategies have come out in order for them to survive. And I think that's that right. that's huge. And it's, you know, the idea that they didn't start behaving this way or reacting this way, you know, to piss you or I off that's mm -hmm. not what that's not their intention here they had to do this to protect themselves mm -hmm. and oftentimes they had to make these decisions on their own in early developmental stages when your brain isn't fully formed so you're you're creating these these ideas or these strategies that from an adult perspective don't seem practical but for them it's they had to survive that's right it's, it's adaptive and it worked really well like every mm -hmm. single one of our survival techniques served us somewhere right none of them were self-sabotaging mm -hmm. it's uh it's the old conversation between the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex right yeah um the strange bed flows <laughs> so how does this i really want to carve space out now to see mm -hmm. how this attachment style shame everything we've been talking about plays out in a couple's mm -hmm. counseling situation yeah Again, I'm going to come back to this, but calling it out is huge. Mm -hmm. And in a couple's situation, the, the first place I like to go is peeling back those layers in a safe and slow way, but also saying, you know, yes, this argument or this disagreement, what is underneath this? What are we calling to each other for? Mm -hmm. And more often than not, it's that connection piece. Mm -hmm. We are looking to connect with this, with our partner, that person sitting in front of us. So those, the couples sitting, staring at each other, whether it's angry in the moment or they're sort of rehashing a disagreement potentially that they had before coming into session. In that moment, in session, we break it down. We, we speak it out loud. And oftentimes, that's what can happen with couples work, right? Is at home, things kind of spiral and spin and mm. no one's being heard because no one's listening to mm. the other person. You want to get your point across. So you spit it out as fast as you can. And mm -hmm. while the other one's speaking, you're preparing your response or your rebuttal. Mm -hmm. Whereas in session, we slow it down. So much slowing down and noticing what are you actually trying to say? What are you saying here that comes out in either a dismissive response to protect yourself or comes out in this, this anxious grabbing at the other person? And mm -hmm. there's Sue Johnson, you know, talks about this, the dance of, of couples work and that there's often these cycles or these dances that we get into and we just go through the motions over and over again, mm -hmm. even though we aren't reaching that end result that we are both striving for. And when mm. we break it down in, in a couple's session, we see more clearly what our desires are. Mm. What is it that we want from each other? We want safety. We want connection. We want security. We want to trust that the other person is going to be there to catch us when we're vulnerable or when we mm -hmm. fall. And we don't often let ourselves get to that vulnerable place where we can say that to the other person because our mm -hmm. defenses are so high. Yeah, for various reasons. I always talk about it with my clients. Of course, it's always 101, but 
As uh, you know, the, we, it's good you mentioned dance. Cause I always consider it like a, when couples get into a relationship, they're dancing. It's like mm-hmm. a dance, and they're dancing with their whole world. It's two mm-hmm. whole worlds are dancing together, and whatever whatever the problems that show up to the party, are invited by the way you're dancing. Mm-hmm. And it's not a conversation about fault. It's a conversation about two different worlds interacting. Yeah. And so we can end up in a situation where we're dancing, but to the wrong music. Mm. And stepping on each other's toes and not knowing what's going on. But it's so threatening that we end up building resentment because of how we attach to each other. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden we can't dance anymore. And we don't know what happened. Mm-hmm. We're just so mad. And so it's about learning less about what the other person is doing to you and more about, okay, how are we dancing that invited these problems in? Mm-hmm. And what problems are we dealing with? And how do we work together to uninvite these guests? Right. And what does that look like? And it often comes down to how we're attaching and how we might have missed, misunderstood each other's attachments. And then how do we bring that together? Definitely. And I think that's that atta- learning about attachment, your own attachment style and the attachment style of your partner is can be incredibly eye opening. Mm-hmm. You know, knowing that likely you don't have the exact same attachment style, attachment style. Because like you mentioned earlier, Chuck, you know, that idea that we can have kind of this, this driving force of an attachment style within us, but we also pull from all these other places Mm -hmm. that, that have served us over time in one way or another. So we do, we come into this relationship or these clients come into relationship with one another, bringing all of these parts, all these pulled pieces Mm -hmm. together. Um, But they're, I love attachment style, you know, books and quizzes. I eat them up myself. Oh, sorry. I hit that. Um, I eat them up myself and I love just the information that you can gather from that. And uh, in, in session, being able to identify little areas that, that poke out and to, to bring about a sense of understanding as well between the partners where in that moment you're saying this is what I was trying to get from this situation. Mm. And the partner saying, I had no idea that's what Mm. you wanted. Mm -hmm. So identifying the discrepancies because our points of view are different. Our attachment styles are different, all of these things. And, and just being able to actually slow down and listen to each other is huge. I have this one, this one exercise that I do and, or one of the exercises that I do, and it's literally a clipboard, one partner has the clipboard and a pen and the other partner gets to speak and the Mm -hmm. partner with the clipboard writes down what they're hearing. And then when that is done, they reflect back what they heard from their Mm -hmm. partner. And that partner who spoke is able to correct or clarify or, you know, identify things that they might've missed. But the idea is to, to really hear each other and it's Mm -hmm. not, and then we swap and we do it the other way and both partners have a chance to speak, but also, be listened to and offer validation to each other in the process instead of working on your rebuttal the whole time because as humans it's what we do that's mm-hmm. not it's not a fault in in couples or in individuals we we want our peace to be heard so we mm-hmm. we are preparing it and that's just natural that's right that's right and you can get in a situation where the resentment or the defenses are so high that you're just waiting for your turn to speak mm-hmm but even what you're saying is nothing more than like a, an amygdala response. I always have a very funny image for this. So I'm not sure if you'll appreciate it. But <laughs> when I'm talking to uh, an individual about their relational issues and I'm saying like, you know, when your amygdala starts to respond and you're redlining, so now you're just defending yourself, you're now just a monkey throwing poop. Mm. And so you can't really have That's a constructive it. argument when the two of that you are just throwing true. poop at each other. <laughs> So that I give them tools true. to see that, like, yep, because everyone's different as to when they hit the red line. Mm-hmm. Um, like I always joke with my wife and I, she's very quick to hit the red line, and then she's very quick to c- calm down and like get to the point. And I take, I'm forever to get there. But when I get there, it's it's done. You're gone. I, I'm gone. <laughs> so it's very difficult to reason with me for a couple hours afterwards because I'm like gone. Mm-hmm. Um. You're throwing poop is what you're doing. That's right. For hours. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm no longer in the argument. I'm just tossing poop. And so like we have to slow things down immediately when that happens. So if I see she's in the red line, we take a break. We have like a safe yeah. word. 
And we say it and then we're both like, oh, okay, we'll go away. And then we come back when we're away from that red response so we can actually yeah. have that conversation. Because if we don't, then we're just throwing poop at each other and there's no conversation happening. Yeah. Which many people can get stuck in for years. Which then builds the resentment and really it's all about, well, I haven't been heard in like 15 years. Exactly. Do I even remember what that's like? Yeah. And so I can imagine in a couple's therapy room when you're dealing with clients who've been married for a long time and they don't remember what it's like to hear each other, mm-hmm. that that can be not only difficult, but then very powerful once they start to be able to hear each other. Definitely. And even that idea right from the get-go of bringing, bringing them back to, you know, it, it sounds kind of silly in some moments, but, you know, that the, one of the first couple questions is, you know, what, tell me, how did you meet? What was your early relationship like? Take me back there. And oftentimes they're taking themselves back there for the first time in a long time. That's such a powerful Gottman method. Man, their training was fun. Yes. Yeah. They're They're cool. I wish it. Yes. (laughs) Seeing them. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, We're we're not here to build a perfect relationship. We're here to build a good enough relationship. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Awesome. Well, all right, that brings us to the end here. Okay. And so before I let you go, I want you to, to uh, let the clients know how to find you. Let the listeners, like your Instagram handles, everything, let them know. Sure, yes. Um, so our website is CourtneyJamesTherapy.com and then Instagram handle is at CourtneyJamesTherapy. Facebook is the same. I don't know how they they do their website. Facebook.com slash Courtney James Therapy, mm-hmm. maybe. Something like um, that. <laughs> and then, you know, on the website, there's the contact email or phone number information as well. And also the links and bios of any of the members of our team. And uh, yeah, it's, again, I want to just kind of stress that, that, community feel and not that mm-hmm. not that you know members outside of the Kempville or North Granville community cannot reach out please do mm-hmm. I just mean I want to kind of highlight that you know Kempville is very much my home and mm-hmm. and I value the sense of community that is there the sense of community that is growing and mm-hmm. and it yeah I appreciate it and I want to continue extending that 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 feel and that peace that comes along with being part of our community. And it's important. Yeah. It's a big piece. Kempville is an incredibly welcoming area. I've been delighted to work in this community since I got mm-hmm. there last year. Well, it's been a year and a half, believe it or not. It's crazy. Yeah. Um, I love it. Great. All right. Well, thanks for being on the show and thanks everybody for listening. You know where to find me, my Instagram and all that stuff. I won't bore you with that this time, <laughs> but share the podcast, let people know what you think of it. Let me know what you think of it and we'll take it from there. Take care.